Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. And I have a special offer for Americano listeners. If you want to subscribe to the Spectator's US edition, which is brilliant, by the way, I edit it, you can go to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and take advantage of our special Americano offer. If you insert the code Americano in capital letters like Donald Trump on Twitter, you will get 5% off. Please do so. I'm joined today by Frank Buckley, who is a Scalia law professor and author of American Succession. And we're going to be asking if coronavirus could lead to America breaking apart. Now, Frank, you've written a piece that's coming out quite soon in The Spectator about how the virus is causing what, you, what you've already written a book about, which is that America is on a path towards the states breaking up. And that coronavirus, rather than bringing the country together, seems to be doing the opposite. Is that a fair summary of what you're saying in the piece? The idea is that while most people have not paid much attention to the idea of secession, there are groups that are beginning to talk about it in places like California. And indeed, I argued, it's a lot easier to imagine and more likely to happen than anyone has really uh, believed or thought up to this point. And the book came out in January. We're in the midst of a coronavirus crisis right now. So the question is, has anything changed? You might have thought, you might have hoped that the epidemic would bring people closer together. I mean, that's what happened after 9-11. After all, there was a tremendous sense of unity in the country. Down at the bottom of my street at the metro stop, for example, people gathered holding candles to express solidarity with people at the Pentagon or in New York. There's none of that now, of course, for a couple of reasons. And one is we're asked to stay apart, right? I mean, we're not supposed to get together. Group hugs do not happen. We have these extraordinary scenes at grocery stores where people queue to get in, lining six feet apart in a row that extends for a full block. So we stay apart. And and I think that has helped make us feel, you know, more separate than ever before. And so is separatism, you know, more likely as a consequence. And I, I rather think it is. I mean, there there are plenty of signs of this at, at various levels. You know, one is the politicians who order people to stay home and in particular not to go to other states. The governors of some states like Rhode Island and Florida actually quarantine visitors from the state. I mean, New York is, is the hardest hit place, but visitors from New York get no sympathy whatsoever when they try to escape that state for uh, another state. This is something that you foreigners like me, I, I know you're a Canadian, but you, you live in America. I find it's very sort of striking, the role of governors in this crisis. And it, it shows how easily America can sort of fall away from centralised government. The, the governors very much come to the fore in this crisis and, and their people look to them almost first before the president. And that's not entirely a bad thing because, you, you know, the, the idea of federalism is 
We're going to get more information about what works and what doesn't when different states try to go their own way and experiment with things. And, and that's the, one of the traditional arguments for federalism. Right now, however, it's, it's having that effect, but it's also making governors compete with one another about supplies. They're blaming uh, Washington. They're blaming some of the agencies which have performed poorly, like the CDC and FEMA. And they're saying, you know, it's one state up against another in trying to get masks and, and you know, wh whatever the antidote might be of the day. So it's had the effect of separating us. It's had the effect of making us pay more attention to what's happening locally. It's empowered governors and it's pitched one governor against another. And then behind all of this, you have the fact that the political wars continue unabated. There was a cessation of politics after 9-11, which carried over for a full year. I mean, the, the authorization for the use of military force in Iraq was largely bipartisan in 2002. Right now, however, amongst the Dems, it's a question of what did Trump know and when did he know it, you know, and, and, and the people who blamed Trump for a ban on travel to and from China back in January, calling it racist, now ask why didn't he do it more quickly? That's a division of class, in a way, is it not? It's, a, it's the elites looking down at the deplorables who are poor and like Trump. Is, is, is it possible that the... And I know your previous book was about <laughs> the themes of class. Does it split so neatly geographically that it could help speed up secession? Well, it, it might. You know, it's, it's done nothing to bring people closer together, to extend the bonds of sympathy to people in other states. There's a sense of we're all in this alone, and I don't think it will accelerate secessionism, but what it won't do is retard it, I think, in any way. And, and so it, it'll continue to march along, powered by the deep animosities that exist within the United States between, uh, on the one hand, uh, a privileged elite in places like D.C. and New York City, and then in the boondocks, the deplorables. Can you explain that fascinating map that came out recently showing far more movement in the South between people? Yeah, the New York Times yesterday, that would be April 3, came out with a map showing roughly who the villains of the piece were. And, you know, the, the meritorious people are the people who stay at home and the villains are the people who gad about. And the people who are gadding about at this point are people mostly in the South. That's what the map showed, right? The old Confederacy was, the, the, that's where the villains were. But what the, the, what the story, a very lengthy one, didn't explain was that firstly, the virus has not affected those states as it has New York. And secondly, it's not like you could just walk across Bleecker Street and get your groceries. If you're in Alabama, you, what, you know, you may have to drive four miles to your local uh, grocery store. They're, they're not next door. So, of course, you travel more in more remote districts. And, and so this was simply a gratuitous slice at uh, people that the readers of the New York Times have long despised. So the approach of the New York Times and the people who picked up on that article was to say, look at these hicks down south, they're being selfish, they don't understand what a serious problem this is. And they didn't take yeah. into account that they, they just have to drive more to get to a shop. Yeah, it's going to be pretty hard to blame them for the crisis, which is centered in, in large cities where people are cheek to jowl, places like New York City. 
Actually, even within New York, it hits places like Brooklyn and Queens more than it does Manhattan. You know, the very privileged people in Manhattan, they, they're doing rather well relative to the rest of us. It's hitting more low-income parts of big cities. So anyway, you know, it's as I say, the barriers to secession are far lower than anyone ever thought. And we've never been more divided. The animosities have never been greater. And while you might have expected the coronavirus epidemic to remind us of our common bonds, it's done none of that. Well, one thing that does bring countries together is war. And a Cold War can do it just as well. And if we look at how relations with China, between China and America are changing, you might say that, you know, that there might be a sort of, certainly with Trump calling it the the China virus and so on, there might be a sort of united sense of grievance against China that might bring Americans together more? Well, yes, we are brought together more during times of war. This, however, is not a war. You don't make war against a virus. There is a need for a strong federal response, national response from Washington, and it's coming, and Trump's enjoying a bit of a bounce right now, but the bounce seems to be dissipating as Democrats have noticed the greater popularity of President Trump, they've stepped up demands to investigate him, to blame him. There's been little by way of suggestion that you're doing a good job. And governors, certain governors seem to have enjoyed a really big bounce. Yeah, and and some of them, the Democrats, have gone out of their way to praise Trump for his role in all of this. But, you know, there's a great collective amnesia in American politics. I mean, we're dominated by a news cycle which is 24-7, but which at the end of 24 hours entirely disappears. So to give one example, the governor of Michigan about three days back blamed Trump, like most of the liberal media, for suggesting that the, how do you pronounce it, hydroxychloroquine pill might, might help. And she banned its use in Michigan and told Michigan doctors they could be prosecuted if they prescribed it. And about three days later, the governor of Michigan asked President Trump to have more of those pills sent to Michigan. But there's, there's no memory of this. There's no accountability, you know. None does offend. I've been, I've been quite struck by that. The media seems, I think several thousand doctors have said it, it actually does help as a treatment. And yet right. because Trump said it, <laughs> the media is desperate to say that it doesn't work. There was a, the, story, the silly story about people like eating fish food because it has a similar name. Yeah. Well, the story is about how Trump lied about the pill from three days back. I think it would have, would have gotten through to a bunch of people. We've had little by way of correction from the media saying, wait a minute, these pills actually do seem to work. And so we may be left with people who got the first message and failed to notice the non-retraction and and who will be harmed as a consequence. I'm interested in this talk of, we talked about this on the last podcast I did, this talk of Cuomo emerging as a possible presidential candidate if, if Biden just turns out to be too gaga to go on. Well, yeah, I I don't know how you switch horses like that in midstream. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what conventions will be like. Primaries, I assume, are all over. If we're left in place with where we are now, then Biden does not, in fact, have a majority. 
But the party has lined up completely behind him. I mean, um, all of the candidates who opposed him now have fallen in line with the party and support Biden. Haven't heard much about that except the fact that there's a bit of a Cuomo boomlet tells you that the Democrats are not entirely happy with their candidate. Yes. But I just wondered about it in terms of the in terms of succession in in that you know Biden's not a a New York candidate and yet all other candidates seem to be have some sort of connection to New York and it seems to me that New York as a state or the tri-state area exerts such a huge gravitational pull on American politics now and I wonder if the the rest of the country feels left behind and that could also lead to states feeling they are different. And California's response has been very, very different to the rest of the country. And I, I wonder well, what you think about that. Well, if it were the case that a Democrat got elected in 2020, this we're assuming there'll be an election in 2020, but if a Democrat would be elected, I don't think that would do much in terms of a move to secession. Why? Because conservatives are long accustomed to sucking things up. But sucking things up is not what liberals do. And if, therefore, Trump were re-elected, I think that's when you'd see a movement towards secession, as we've not seen it in the last 150 years. What is it about the Trump presidency that makes it lead to a succession more? Because it, because it leads to more division? Well, why do they object so much to Trump, are you asking? I suppose so, yeah. Well, two things. He is utterly unfiltered in a political system that was supposed to filter political candidates and which more or less did so. I mean, there were exceptions like Andrew Jackson but and Abraham Lincoln, but, but for the most part, the people who emerged at the top, any ticket from any either party were people who had kind of shown themselves to be members of a club of one way, one form or another. George Bush 41 would be an obvious example. Trump is anything but that. He's more of a truck driver. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a building construction fellow. There's that. But I, I think more substantively, nobody, no Republican before Trump was so willing to take on a liberal establishment and treat it with contempt to show a complete disregard for the niceties that were thought to be a something every every candidate was obliged to pay respect to. He, he didn't do any of that. I think this seems to be, to them, a direct attack upon their most cherished beliefs. I mean, you could live with a George Bush 41, for example, or, or, or even George W. Bush, because in the end you knew nothing much was going to change. Right. You still owned the Supreme Court and the judges. You still own the media. Right now, they don't own the Supreme Court so much. They, they certainly own the media. And, and so what we're hearing is something like a primal scream from, from people who thought they owned America and who have a sense that it's been taken away from them. And so you would see succession possibly being the, these, I suppose you'd call them the elites, breaking away from the people of America rather than the other way around. Yeah, they may say they love America, but they really don't like Americans. And and they could make it on their own. A breakup would require the sort of thing that I became quite familiar with in Canada, a demand for something like sovereignty association that is a continued relation with the rest of the country, free trade, for example. 
free trade, perhaps free movement of goods as well, people and goods. There wouldn't be an, a neat secession, but we might find ourselves on the way towards a country that more resembles the EU than a united country. But against that, I suppose coronavirus might work in that, you know, we, we, we've seen a fair bit of economic nationalism in Trump's agenda. I'm not sure how successfully it's been applied yet. But certainly now the case for economic nationalism has been enhanced by the fact that, you know, pharmaceutical supply chains rely on China. And in a crisis, America needs to be able to produce, obviously, large amounts of medicine. So you could have a well, you, you could have more of a nationalized economy. You might you you might expect greater trade barriers with respect to places like China. That's very much on the cards. With respect to how you deal with an epidemic, is there an advantage to bigness? Not necessarily. I mean, there are scientists all over the world. The first hint that this hydrocroxylquinine drug might help came from Israel. If you had states trying to look after their own people, you'd expect them to get into the market and try to bid across the world for the right kind of goods for their people. As it happens, the federal agencies in question have done a very poor job, it seems, in trying to cure the problem, anticipate the problem, prepare for it, any of that. Subsidiarity works. That's the lesson we always forget, is that? Smallness works. Yeah, subsidiarity, but even smallness. I mean, I, I ha look, I don't know what they're doing in Denmark, but I, I expect it's fairly effective. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.